0: And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You are listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation
1: of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. How are you, Slater Crusaders? Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. What a crazy week. A uh, lot to do. You know, a lot of people said, uh, well, you probably want Hillary to win because there'll be more to talk about. Nope. <laughs> There's plenty to talk about uh, with, with, uh, with Trump having won. I want to talk about intellectualism and uh, why people use that word. So th- this is why. So the Washington Post wrote an article. David Gellernter David Gellander. Fiercely. Anti-intellectual. Think about it. You're not just anti-intellectual. You're fiercely anti-intellectual. When did the Washington Post become BuzzFeed? What is this? Fiercely anti-intellectual computer scientist is being eyed for Trump's science advisor. <laughs> what a ridiculous sentence. A, an anti-intellectual computer scientist? What do you... <laughs> does that make any sense at all? I mean, like... I mean, if you wanted to be super stereotypical, it would be like anti-intellectual NASCAR fan or something like anti-intellectual computer scientist. So, and I don't need any emails from NASCAR fans; it was a joke. So, who is David Gellernder? He's a Yale professor. He created parallel computing, which makes it possible for to do, to do anything that computers do today. The co-founder of Sun Microsystems called him, quote, one of the most brilliant and visionary computer scientists of our time. He has a bunch of degrees, classical Hebrew among them. He's written a bunch of books about history and religion and artificial intelligence and philosophy. Are you going to call that guy anti-intellectual? Not only are you going to call him anti-intellectual, fiercely anti-intellectual. Are you kidding me? Why? Not a big Obama guy. Oh, that's it. F- fiercely anti-intellectual. Developer of parallel computing. Do you see how absurd the name calling has gone? As Jonah Goldberg points out, there's been a long history of so-called intellectuals being liberal. So today, intellectualism equals liberalism. Or more specifically here, if you are not a liberal, then you are anti-intellectual. Just so you know. Reminds me of one of my favorite Montgomery Gentry songs. You know what I'm talking about. The old man right there in the rocking chair at the courthouse square. You know. He says he he could buy your fancy car with $100 bills. Don't let those faded overalls fool you. He made his millions without one day of schooling. So where did this concept of an intellectual come from as a noun? Like you are, you are an intellectual. Not you are intellectual, like you're smart. You are an intellectual as like a class of people. See the difference there? Like if you're smart, you have intellect. You are intellectual. But if you're an intellectual, that's a class of people. When did that happen? So it started during what's called the, uh, the Dreyfus Affair. Here's the very short of the story. It was 1894, Captain Alfred Dreyfus. He was in the French military and he was accused of giving secrets to the Germans. He was accused of being a traitor and he was sentenced to life in prison. Turns out he was framed. And not only was he framed, but when the government found out that he was framed and he was innocent, there was actually this huge cover-up, right? To cover up all the government's mistakes. This was all revealed and then there was a second trial. So this whole process created a or I was going to say created divisions but it revealed a lot of divisions in in French society. It was very OJ Simpson in that regard, right? During this whole case, there was a man by the name of uh, Zola. He was a writer. But in this case he was uh, he, he acted more as like a reporter. And every morning he would uh write a new article on the front page of one of the French newspapers and it was an open letter to the president of France and every morning this newspaper would sell out first thing in the morning everyone couldn't get enough of Zolda's writings and he would accuse the president of France of obstructing justice and all this other stuff trying to they didn't. the government didn't frame the guy but they mistakenly um, charged him and then covered up all their mistakes so Tom Wolf wrote an essay about this in 2000. And he was talking about Zola and who he was and how Zola devoured the details of the case. The Zola guy, he knew more about this case than any judge or prosecutor in the world. And supporters of Zola, fans of his, called him an intellectual. The very first time it was used, an intellectual. Because he was brilliant and he was applying his craft so passionately to this cause. So that was the first use of this term. Now I want to quote Tom Wolfe here. He says, the new hero, like today, the intellectual today, as opposed to Zola a hundred years ago, doesn't need to burden himself with the irksome toil of reporting or research. For that matter, he needs no particular education, no scholarly training, no philosophical grounding, no conceptual frameworks, no knowledge of academic or scientific developments. He doesn't need skill sets. So what does he need? Indignation about the powers that be and the middle class fools who do their bidding is all you need. Bango, you're an intellectual. What does that mean? point is, you don't need to be intellectual to be an intellectual. You just need to be smug. Think about it. The guy created parallel computing, called one of the most brilliant and visionary computer scientists of our time. He has more degrees than I could fathom, and he's called anti-intellectual. Why? Because he's not smug enough. Because, again, if if being an intellectual is all based on talent and ability and skills, well, if he's not an intellectual, then who is? It's about being smug. Are you smug enough? Do you have enough indignation? He doesn't. So he's not an intellectual. Crazy, right? Being an intellectual has nothing to do with intellect anymore. And there's your proof. You just have to think you're better than everyone else. And if you don't, if you have the humility to realize that you're not better than anyone else, then you're not an anti intellectual. In fact, you're fiercely anti-intellectual. <laughs> right? So it's not even like you're just normal. You're anti-intellectual. Here's Wolf. It was his indignation that elevated him to a plateau. Speaking about an intellectual today. It's his indignation that elevated him to the plateau of moral superiority. And once up there. If he was in a position to look down at the rest of humanity, beautiful. And it hadn't cost him any effort, intellectual or otherwise. You're just, you get on your perch, you look down on people, you're super smug and you're an intellectual. Voila. Congratulations. Nasim Talib, another super smart guy. Where's he teaching now? He used to be a Wharton. Somewhere weird, he said. Like, oh, he's in Paris, I think, in the University of Paris, something like that. He calls them the uh, intellectual yet idiots. <laughs> that's the that's the class that he calls them, intellectuals yet idiots. They're the people who tell the rest of us what to do, what to eat, how to speak, how to think, and who to vote for. But he says the problem with the one-eyed following the blind is that these self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut on Coconut Island. And he gives a million examples. They're all, well, let me give a few. Let me just quote this one paragraph. He says with psych, so that he's trying to prove how the intellectuals are not that intellectual. With psychology papers replicating less than 40%. Let me explain what that means. So in science, you have to be able to, you make experiments that you can replicate, right? If you can't do that, then it's not science. You need to be able to replicate the experience, uh, experiment over and over and over again to see if you get similar results. But psychology papers replicate less than 40%. Dietary advice reversing after 30 years of fat phobia. We've talked before about how um, the sugar lobbyists paid a bunch of Harvard scientists to make a bunch of studies that say that sugar is good for you and fat is what's making people fat. And it's totally the opposite. I mean, it's sugar that makes people fat. So we've had 30 years of fat phobia when fat's not the problem. Sugar. Macroeconomic analysis working worse than astrology. The appointment of Bernanke who is less than clueless of the risks and pharmaceutical trials replicating at best only a third of the time and he goes on and on and on with a bunch of different examples. So so we got a couple things going on here. Let's just refresh this, review this. You have intellectuals that don't need to be smart. You just need to be smug. You have people who have a ton of intellect but because they're not smug they're anti-intellectual. Now let me end here, because we we talked about this last week. The intelligent yet idiot uh, pathologizes so uh, or pathologizes so um, uh, looks at other people as abnormal, right? So the, the the intelligent yet idiot looks down on people for doing things he doesn't understand. Without ever realizing, it is his understanding that may be limited. This is the humility we speak out speak of a lot. Bias in the media—it ranges from one extreme of just liars to people in the middle who mean well, but they have bias because we all do. We're all human beings, right? Everyone comes to every situation, every story. Let's say you're a journalist and you have to write about whatever. You're going to come to that with different experiences. And different opinions and different perspectives and everything. You're going to come at it with a different perspective than someone else is going to be. That's just inherent and because we're human beings, not robots. The key is to be aware of your, your perspective, to be aware of your limitations, and to have the humility to understand that you might have bias and to think about what you may not know we talked about this last week with the article from the Washington post about gun silencers written by someone who obviously has never fired a gun in his life. And he's writing this whole article about how gun silencers are evil and horrible. And he is, it's not an opinion piece. It's a, uh, news article. Never once does he have the humility to, to be aware of what he's not aware. Of. Right? So this is what he's saying. He's saying the idiot, excuse me, the intellectual yet idiot looks down on others for doing things. He doesn't understand without ever realizing that it's his understanding that may be limited arrogant smug condescending so what does all this mean i think this election if nothing else if nothing else it proved don't pay attention to the forecasters and the political scientists and the campaign consultants and the pollsters and all the talking heads telling you what's going to happen or telling you what you should do how how could trump's election prove that anymore but also don't listen to those same people on TV and wherever telling you what's true or what's right or what's good. If that, if they can tell you with a straight face that the guy who invented parallel computing and is as highly esteemed as they come in the scientific community, if that pundit at the Washington post can tell you that he's fiercely anti-intellectual just because he might serve as Trump's science advisor Why would you ever listen to that person again? And that is the media. So never be confused. Bottom line, never be confused. There's a big difference between intellect and being an intellectual. Add that to your list of buzzwords. When you see an intellectual, throw a flag on the field and really pay attention to what they're trying to say. 1-88-933-93. 1-88-933-93. 88 900 33 93 Slater radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to
1: Mike Slater. I want to share this story here for no reason. I just think it's interesting. The other day I talked to the biographer of a book about William B. Ogden, who was the first great railroad tycoon in America. So it reminded me of this story. I'm reading this Ulysses S. Grant uh, biography, an American American Ulysses. It's awesome. Read it. It's great. So Ulysses S. Grant in 1850. 52, he was stationed with the army or he was told to go uh, out to California with the army because there were so many people traveling west for gold right so they, the US government sent some some military out there to keep some peace so I don't know where he was at the time I think he was in upstate New York but he had three options on how to get there right so think about this you're in New York State I got to get to California it's 1852 how do we do it three options first Oregon Trail The Oregon Trail takes four to six months and you got to leave at a certain time of the year in order to make it happen. Four to six months. Option one. Option two, he could sail around the southern tip of Argentina, Cape Horn, which took a year. That's option two. Sail for a year to get to California. Or option three, travel across Panama. Now, this was 70 years before the Panama Canal. So you had to travel across Panama. There was no canal. So he decided to go option number three. So 700 people get on a boat from somewhere like New Orleans, I think. And they set sail to Panama. So that takes a couple of weeks to get there. By the way, the boat, it's half military men and half men and children, men and women uh, just going out to California to find gold. That's what's half and half. So they get to Panama after a couple of weeks. Get off in Panama. They get on a train for 20 miles. It's 100 degrees, humid as Hades, and the train is like a burning furnace. And you got everyone packed into this train for 20 miles. Then they get to this river. They got to get out of the train with all their stuff with them, right? Imagine they have stuff, right? They pile into these dugout canoes on this river. Paddled by uh, men, and I'll quote from Grant: uh, These canoes steered by natives, not inconveniently burdened with clothing. <laughs> so you got naked locals steering these canoes with people piled in them, right? One mile an hour up the up the river, up current. One day into it, they all thought they were going to die, right? They were they were all swarmed by all kinds of bugs and birds, and they were attacked by monkeys, and it was horrible. It gets dark, they pull over to the side of the river, and they have to sleep in the dugout canoes, as Grant said, in shivering terror. Okay? So you do that for a couple days. A couple days. Then you arrive in, in the village. Right? Now they have to go find mules to trek the next 25 miles to get to the coast. While they're looking for mules, cholera breaks out. They're in this town for a week looking for mules. 37 people die in one day. You got people dying every day, but in one day, 37 people died. And when they died, they were just thrown in the jungle. They finally found enough mules. They rode them for a couple weeks. And they got to the, the other coast of Panama. And there they found a boat there to take them to San Francisco. But the boat was quarantined because so many people on the boat had cholera. So they had to wait a few more weeks before they could board the boat. And if someone who was on the boat died, they would wrap them up and tie a cannonball to their legs and throw them overboard. 700 people started the trip. 450 made it alive. Think about that. What? Like it was 150 years ago. That was how you got to California. Oh, and then you got to get on the boat, and then you got another couple of weeks up to San Francisco. What in the world. So Ulysses S. Grant was 29. At this, he was 29 years old, and one survivor, and that's what it was—a survivor of the trip. One survivor said he was like a ministering angel to us all, taking care of sick people, and he just sort of became the leader of this journey. So that's your trip 150 years ago from the East Coast to California. Today, you get on a plane, four hours, and the whole time it's uh, uh, my seat doesn't go back and. Uh. Oh, the TV channels don't work. My TV doesn't work. I don't get, I don't, I don't like any of these movies. Have you ever done that one? So my only point is, let's just be grateful. Life is all about perspective. It's all relative. And let's be grateful and appreciative. one 888 900 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. This radio network.
1: After the election, the press, the media, the coastal elites, the lamestream media, could not fathom how someone could vote for Donald J. Trump. And you remember, go back to January, or excuse me, November, whatever was seventh or whatever. And there was a lot of, I don't even know my country anymore, and what it's. uh, This is what it's like to wake up in Trump's America and stuff like that, right? So, newspapers, and then uh, to their credit, decided to send reporters out to the rest of the country to find out what's going on west of the Hudson River and outside of the Beltway. So it's been uh, a couple months since they've done that, and we are starting to now see more articles uh, the, the, from city folks' first trip into the frontier lands, like Wisconsin. And Texas. (laughs) Out into the wilderness. And I like the effort. So I don't want to be super critical here. I like the effort. But the first attempts of this. Not quite right. The first story we shared. Was from the New York Times. And reporter went to Texas. And. Acted like he was on a safari. And he reported back to the people of New York. That. People in Texas like trucks. That was the whole article. I'm not. That wasn't one paragraph in a bigger article. That was the article. It was about Texas people like trucks. No explanation. No insight. No depth. Just, hey, look at these people in Texas drive a lot of pickup trucks. Weird, right? There's a New York Times article. So like, I like the effort, but we kind of missed the mark on that one. Uh, now, Politico is going to take their first stab at it here. They wrote a nice long article. What to do, excuse me, what do you do if a red state moves to you? <whistles> hmm. What What do you do if a red state moves to you? Quick Quick timeout before I even tell you the, the punchline of this. Can you guys think of any place in the country where, okay, for instance, a lot of people from California... Moving to Texas, okay. So you got people from a blue state moving to red Texas, and people in Texas are ticked off about that. Stop trying to make Texas like California, right? Can you think of any scenario where people from a red state are moving to a blue state, where people from the South are moving to the North, or what? Like, I can't think of any scenario. So, so what is this article? What do you do if a red state moves to you? Where are there? People from a red state moving to a blue state. I don't even know where that is. So I'm intrigued. So it's a story about Pepin County, Wisconsin. Population 7,000. Very rural uh, county. What's odd about the headline is the article, as you would expect, is pretty much the opposite of the headline. The story is about a rural conservative area and a bunch of people from the cities. Moving in now, I know we talk a lot about the great divide in our country and that city versus country. That's not just the great divide in our country. It's the great divide in all of human history, city folk, country folk. And in this article, they talk about people from the cities, but they're not just talking about generic cities. They're literally talking about the twin cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, which is about four hours away. So the story is the story of city folk having enough of city life in very blue Minneapolis, St. Paul moving to rural wisconsin which they think is is democratic but it's not because okay so wisconsin this is so fascinating to me how people misinterpret this wisconsin's a blue state right they've had a democratic governor democratic legislator they've been voting for democratic presidents for a while but this happens to like illinois is the best example illinois is a blue state but it's not really a blue state look at the county map of illinois Hillary in the last election won two counties in Illinois. Chicago, Cook County, and the county right next to it. So Hillary just won Chicago. The entire There's not a single other county in Illinois that went blue. Only those two. So it's not a blue state. It's a red state with a blue city in it. The rest is dark red. So it's the same with Wisconsin. So Wisconsin's red with some blue cities. That doesn't make it a blue state. So it's the same with Wisconsin here. So people from, from literally the cities, the twin cities, moved into Wisconsin thinking it was all Democratic and blue, but they moved to tiny rural Pepin County where it's country and red. So it wasn't, the article is, what do you do if a red state moves to you? What? That's not what happened. That, that's, that's, that's not, it doesn't make any sense. The real story is, from the perspective of the locals of Pepin County who have lived there forever, the real story is, what do you do when a bunch of city folk move to your small town? That's that's the story. The story is not... It, it, they tried to write it from the perspective of progressives who moved to Wisconsin thinking it was a blue state, but oh my gosh, people voted for Trump here. What's happening to me? How did all these red people come to my... Si- no. <laughs> the story is, how did you city folk move to rural Wisconsin thinking it was going to be Blue when it wasn't. You see See the difference there. So the article, and this makes sense because it's written by someone working at Politico. It's written from the the perspective of progressives, not from the perspective of the conservatives of Pepin County. So I'll give you an example of of this divide. Uh, He, this is from the article. He talked about a uh, is one of the residents. He talked about a recent squabble over the creation of an area ATV club. Some newcomers, the city folk, argued that the machines would make too much noise and lower their property values. There was, quote, opposition from a lot of liberals who live in fancy houses on the bluffs, he said. Some of them, he added, quote, rarely talk to the locals, even while trying to impose their ideas and sensibilities. The locals, Johnson said, understandably, quote, feel hurt by the people who look at them as rural rubes. So there's we talk about the divide in our city or excuse me, in our country. City versus country. And here that divide is in Pepin County. You got country folk who want to set up an ATV riding area. For four wheelers and all the rest. And then you got the fancy uh, liberals who live up in their big houses in the bluffs. Who don't want noise. So So there's your divide right there. In Pepin County. A little microcosm of the divide nationwide. Here's another guy. He used to be the head of the local Democratic Party. But... Uh, became a Republican, He he was the sheriff for 28 years, he said when the people came in, the city folk, and the things that they were trying to push on the rest of us, that's why I left the Democratic Party. I didn't want to deal with these people. I didn't want to be a part of what they were a part of. You're talking about people from the cities who are very progressive. I call them tree huggers, a bunch of tree huggers. And they referred to us, meaning the people who lived here and worked here all our lives, as a bunch of hicks. They just think they're a little bit better than everyone else and that we are not as smart. Two types of Democrats in Pepin County. You got people coming in from the cities and you have descendants of farmers who had lived during the Depression who still credit the Democratic Party with seeing their family through the Depression. Isn't that wild? Right. So 80 years later, 90 years later, why are you a Democrat? Oh, the Democrats helped us through the Depression. My granddaddy told me so. <laughs> I was like, "What are you talking about?" I got that all the time when I lived in Tennessee. People would say, "Oh, I can't vote for Republican." My daddy would roll roll in his grave, like, "What? This isn't your daddy's Republican party or a Democratic Party anymore." What do you mean you can't vote for a Republican because your daddy would be upset? Wait, what? So those are the two types of Democrats in Pepin County. Fascinate. That's the divide in our country. It's not black and white or whatever. All the divides we're told exist. It's not what it is. It's city versus country. I got to take a break here, but I'll give you one more example of of the smugness because that's what it is. It's a cultural superiority, right? You got people coming in from the city, moving into the country, telling the uh, the country rubes how they need to be living and what they need to be doing. Give me an example. This is they they interviewed a, a sculptor. An artist who moved in from the cities. Who can't understand why someone could vote for Trump. Quote, and it's a struggle. You have to continue to interact with these people. And you have to wonder, do you really have hate in your heart in this way? Really, at the core, I I, I didn't believe this about us. A word to the wise, if, if you want to understand how someone could vote for Trump, you have to lose the assumption That it must be because they have hate in their heart. You're never going to come to the right answer about why people would vote for Trump if that's the original assumption that you make about them. So I share that. Just uh, keep an eye out for these these stories investigating what it's like living in the country and what these country folk are like. But I don't want to be too critical because at least they're trying to understand. So I got to give them a little bit of credit, I guess. 1-888-933-93. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network.
0: You're listening to
1: Mike Slater.
0: On the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Hey, Slater Crusaders, I, I should have uh, played this clip uh, in the beginning of the last hour when uh, we talked about Trump hysteria. And if you missed that, please go back and listen to the podcast at uh, theblaze.com radio. And it was the second hour, and we talked about people who have total Trump hysteria. And we played a video of someone who you know, thought Trump was going to start nuclear war and, and put people in internment camps. And, all and she worked through those fears. And, and at the end of this process, it was about 25 minutes, at the end of this process, she realized that uh, it was all made up. Every fear she had was totally made up. Uh, I wish we could go through that process um, with everyone who has Trump hysteria, including all the people at the Women's March in Austin, Texas. I want to play this video. It's just part of the video from Stephen Crowder. He went to the Women's March dressed as a woman, and uh, not not a pretty one, uh, but no one batted his <laughs> eye. And he asked people uh, why they're there. Well, here's here's what happened.
0: Now, with Trump coming in and the threat of tyranny, as they put it, equal rights were certainly on the mind. So Stephanie and Janelle wanted to find out exactly which rights were most in peril. But as far as right. policy, what should we all be most concerned about with this march with Donald Trump and uh, this administration? Uh, to you. To what you. To me. Like the rights. Specifically to your community or in general? You know, I think personally, the in- the imminent challenges that are kind of, uh, like, projected or forecasted for the country as the overall, like... Oh, my gosh. Well, can... I-, I think that the biggest concern for me is just this idea that this administration has a right to tell any of us what we can do with our bodies. Right. What we can wear on our bodies. Right. What we can uh, say about our bodies. Right. Uh, I guess I have... A- Answers to that. Okay. And and that is our choice, not theirs, and it's not theirs to tell. What we can us wear certainly not fashion advice from Mike Penn. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, it seems the only people who had anything close to an answer uh, were these two. They'll illegal make it a felony. will make, make it a felony to have an abortion? They wanna yeah, make it a call. felony on to top prison. of that. They, they wanna put people in prison for abortion? Yes. See I didn't know about this. Yes. But that was pretty stupid. So to get clearer, more definitive answers, we decided to go straight to the top. Headlining speaker and de facto feminist leader of the Democratic Party, Wendy Davis. Thank you so much. You're such an inspiration. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. What's your name? Stephanie, what rights do you think people should be most concerned about and how they can be active with this incoming administration?
1: I don't think that we can single out a single one.
0: Okay. Oh, skunked again.
1: Incredible. Uh, again, please uh, go to theblaze.com/radio and check out the second hour of the show, and you can learn how to talk with people who have that hysteria and they don't even know why. Uh, I want to mention this real quick before we get out of here. Uh, Trump's, so I think Trump's uh, picks for all the nominees for his cabinet, everything. I think they're tremendous. Uh, I have no complaints. Can't think of anyone better for any of them. Honestly, uh, I think they're all fantastic. Uh, this one is is excellent as well. Uh, General John Kelly for the chair of Homeland Security, Marine Corps General, former commander of Southern Command. The guy means business. Makes perfect sense why Donald Trump would choose him. Uh, General Eisenhower, when he became president, one of his first orders of business was to control the border and really control the border for the first time in our history. And he appointed as the it was the uh, INS commissioner, which is the Uh, Immigration, it was, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. It's like ICE today. He appointed Joseph May Swing, a general who fought in World War I and commanded the uh, 11th Airborne in the Philippines during World War II. The guy, again, incredible, like epic war hero. And then after the war, General Eisenhower puts this guy in charge of the border. Same thing today. President Trump puts a Marine Corps general in charge. In charge of the border, and it's amazing, you know. Trump was it on Wednesday, did his executive orders and gave a speech about shutting, shutting the border, not shutting the border down, but protecting the border and all the rest. And it's amazing. It's like uh, he's actually following through on his campaign promises. We were watching his speech. I'm like, this is surreal. I, I, is this even allowed? Are we allowed to have presidents who actually follow through on their campaign promises? I'll tell you, I live here in San Diego. We have the busiest border checkpoint in the world, just 20 miles south of where I'm sitting right now, and. It's a big problem and we, we have a situation where, and we've talked to border patrol agents and they tell stories of people will come across our border illegally wave down the border agents wave them down here i am here i am wave them down and the border agents say they're like a walmart welcoming crew they they pick up the uh the, the illegal immigrants the illegal immigrants say they're seeking asylum or whatever and then the border agents bring them to the trolley station on our side of the border and let them go this is insane. This has got to stop. And I have a feeling General John Kelly, charge of Homeland Security, and President Donald Trump, in charge of the federal government, are going to have no time for that. Slater Radio on Twitter. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We can hang out all week, and we will see you next Saturday. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
0: The Blaze Radio Network.